So if you have a copy of Scripture with you, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Now, when you were younger, your parents or your teachers would probably ask you year after year, what do you want to be when you grow up? And uh, you're probably maybe still being asked that. What do you want to be when you grow up? What are you going to do? Some years, maybe you wanted to be a firefighter or uh, a doctor. Uh, Maybe others of you want to be a professional ball player. Astronaut and travel to space. As you grew up, you you realized that these dream careers would require a lot of hard work and, and diligent preparation. For example, if you actually are selected as an astronaut candidate, you don't immediately get blasted off into space. You probably know that. You must be trained. You must be equipped. You go through two years of basic training. You go through language training, survival training, take all sorts of technical courses. After that, you have to go through extensive uh, simulations and system trainings you got to train your body physically so that you can acclimate to the microgravity environment that you'll be subjected to. It's physically and, and mentally rigorous. Three months prior to uh, launch, you go through intensive training, which prepares you for your particular mission and, and assignments. The stresses and the challenges of being an astronaut, of leaving Earth, requires long, comprehensive preparation. You're preparing to live for a time in a hostile, foreign environment that you're simply not suited for. Now, if you think about it, there are many similarities between astronauts and Christians. As Christians, we too need intense, comprehensive preparation. We are elect exiles, as the apostle tells us, launched into a world that's hostile to our beliefs and behaviors, hostile to our language and lifestyle, hostile to our loves and longings. You feel that crunch each and every day, don't you? The cultural environment in which we live is spiritually dead and lifeless. We can't breathe the air. We're suffocating. At times, it's leaving us dizzy, disgusted. We struggle to stay grounded and tethered to the truth and to walk according to the will of God. Christian life is hard. It's full of challenges. And if we're going to stand firm in the grace of God and stay focused on our God-given mission as His holy people in an unholy world, then we must be prepared. We must be mentally and spiritually prepared for the hostile environment and world, this spiritual Babylon in which we live and work and study and play. And God has graciously given us Sundays, this Lord's Day, as our day of rest. The market day for the soul in which we, we get to have God prepare us. He prepares our hearts and minds for battle 
with the hostilities and temptations and challenges that are going to bombard us throughout the week. He's equipping us with the full armor of God. And in particular, God's word prepares us for this pilgrim life, this life as elect exiles. And so let's listen carefully here to 1 Peter 4, 1-6, knowing this is God's word. And these are the preparations we need. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Seek the Lord's blessing. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your inspired scriptures. We pray, Lord, that you would inscribe them on our hearts, that we might know them, that we might live them. Lord, would your spirit move and work in us now as we hear your word read and preached. We ask, Lord, that you would prepare us for this life in this world that we might live unto your glory and be a blessing to those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage divides nicely into uh, three parts. In verses 1 and 2, Peter's encouraging us to arm ourselves with a cross-shaped mind. To arm ourselves with a cross-shaped mind. And then in verses 3 and 4, he's explaining how this cross-shaped mind equips us better to live a counter-cultural way of life. A counter-cultural way. And then in the final two verses, 5 and 6, he illustrates how a believer, even one who has died, can be both condemned and vindicated at the same time. So this is the God-given training that we need if we're going to survive and thrive as followers of Christ in a hostile environment in this world in which we live. We must equip ourselves with this way of thinking, namely, that by, the way, by way of the cross, Jesus leads us out of sin through persecution and into the glorious kingdom of our God. That's what we need to hear today, that by way of the cross... Jesus leads us out of sin through persecution and into the glorious kingdom of our God. If we can learn and apply this truth to our lives today, then we can be better equipped to stand firm in the grace of God, even if that should involve suffering 
at the hands of ungodly opposition, which this letter is preparing us to face. So first, we must have a cross-shaped mind. Verses 1 and 2, a cross-shaped mind. Uh, The way of the cross, this is not a a physical path that you take. It's not something you're going to find on a map. Rather, it's a way of thinking. It's a mindset, a worldview, a, a philosophy. In verse 1, we read, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So Peter wants us to arm ourselves, to equip ourselves with a very specific mindset, a cruciform mindset. This, this is our weapon and defense against sin, temptation, and all ungodliness. So what must we think? What must be our mindset? Well, a Christian must know and believe that suffering is the way to glory. Suffering is the way to glory. This is one of the major themes in this letter. Suffering unto glory. We must have a cross-shaped mind, and this mindset only exists in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not going to find it anywhere else. You're not going to find it in the self-help section, I guarantee it. Not in Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Judaism, materialism, hedonism, mysticism, none of the isms. That's because it's foolishness to the world. The cross is a stumbling block to fallen man. Christ suffered in the flesh. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. But we know his suffering was not ultimately unto death and loss. It was unto glory, victory, salvation. Salvation for us. And since this precious gospel is true, we, his followers, are encouraged today to adopt the mindset of Christ. The believer, like Christ in the flesh, must trust in his or her heavenly Father to bring useful fruits and sweet results from bitter sufferings. As Christians, we must arm ourselves with this gospel truth that Christ suffered and triumphed for his people, not in order to keep us from all suffering. That's not yet. That's coming. It's not yet. But so as to lead us safely and triumphantly through sufferings in the present unto future glory. You see, there's a close connection between Christ's experience in his flesh, his humiliation, his uh, suffering, his crucifixion, and our own experience in the flesh of temptation and pressures and abuse from the world, the flesh, and the the devil. Remember, as Christ's people, we walk in his footsteps. We follow after our head. The body goes where the head goes. We take up our cross and we follow him. And if we're going to walk in his footsteps, then we must have his mindset, a cross-shaped mind, a mind that knows that believes, that trusts, that suffering is God's way to glory. If you don't believe this, then frankly, you don't believe the gospel. For it was through the suffering of Christ that we were brought from death to life, from sin to holiness, from hell to heaven. So as we continue in this passage this morning, notice that such a cross-shaped mind is passionately opposed to sin. 
A cross-shaped mind is passionately opposed to sin. Uh, Peter writes, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. When Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, he was showing his passionate opposition, his passionate hate of sin. It's been said, if you want to know how much God hates sin, just look at the cross. He takes it very seriously, and so should we. Where his only begotten, well-pleasing son suffered, bled, and died for sin on the cross. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, passionately opposes sin. It's a direct assault upon his perfect holiness. Is it any wonder that in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, we see this cruciform attitude on display? One commentator writes, Persons who are prepared to suffer demonstrate that they have a particular attitude towards certain principles. We know this, don't we? If we read of covenant or history, we know that you must have a particular attitude toward particular principles if you're going to suffer for them. goes on, Jesus was prepared to suffer, and therefore he must have had this attitude of opposition to sin. And since you have been called to suffer like Jesus did, you should also adopt the same attitude as he had. You will find that this attitude acts like armor in protecting you from temptation. For the particular attitude which Christ had is related to sin. It can be summed up in the saying, a person who suffers in the flesh has ceased from sin. When you were dead in your sins and trespasses, you you didn't have this attitude, did you? This Christ-like cross-shaped mindset, you didn't have it. You were not opposed to sin. At that time, you would rather sin than suffer. But after conversion, a Christian is given a different mindset. Our attitude towards sin and suffering has been changed. In fact, our relation to sin has been changed. Before, you were enslaved to sin. You were under its power and dominion. But in Christ, we've been set free. His death made an end to sin's dominion over us. So that in Christ we have ceased from sin. And you know we don't cease completely. We're, we're, uh, we're still a work in progress. We're not there yet. But sin no longer has dominion over the Christian. It's been dethroned. A new king sits on the throne of your heart. By faith we share in the sufferings of Christ. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. Paul says it well. I think Paul and Timothy are on the same page here. Now if we died with Christ, Paul says in Romans 6, we believe that we will also live with him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves, consider yourselves, think about yourselves this way, that you're dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign 
in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. In other words, because of our relationship to Jesus, because of our union with Christ by faith, we have a new attitude and mindset towards sin and suffering. We know that by God's power, grace, and wisdom, that suffering is the way to salvation and glory. That God can use sufferings to set us free from certain sins. Has he done that in your life? Has he set you free from certain sins by bringing you through certain trials, certain sufferings? He might afflict us in order to free us, just as he afflicted his son in order to set us free from hell. So with this cross-shaped mind, you and I are better equipped to say no to sin's temptation, knowing that we've ceased from sin. To say yes to the will of God, knowing that in Christ we are alive to God. Verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Of God. How does God want you to live? He's told us in His Word. He gives us His law, which is how He, he, he presents us a way of life. Here's how He wants you to live. Jesus Christ overcame temptation and sin, and He suffered for righteousness' sake because He knew it was the way to life. He knew it was the will of his heavenly father. Not my will, but your will be done. He trusted his father's word. He believed the promises of God. He walked by faith, not by sight. He he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Hebrews 12. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross. He believed that it was suffering unto glory. A cross-shaped mind is what we need if we're going to endure the shame that comes with following Christ in the world today. This mindset believes the gospel And has the hope of victory and vindication. This mindset opposes sin. And this mindset is a powerful weapon to fight off temptation. And to endure our own crosses and sufferings. Peter writes, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So with that mindset firmly established, firmly equipped we are ready to live a counter-cultural way. And that's our second point this morning. Uh, Peter writes, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Remember, in Christ we've been delivered from sin. It's been dethroned in our hearts. We've been born again to a new life of wisdom and holiness and righteousness. In the past, we would waste our lives, waste our times, waste our energies and our worship on sinful pursuits. 
We lived as godless pagans, practicing and desiring the things that are simply not right, not good, destructive. I want you to notice this list here that Peter gives, this list of six vices. You could summarize those six vices. What would it be? I think a good summary is complete lack of self-control. A complete lack of self-control. These are harmful, self-destructive pleasures. A sensuality. This, this is a general term that describes unrestrained, unbridled lust and lawlessness. The sensuous person doesn't wonder, is this right? They simply ask, does this feel good? Does this make me happy right now? Okay, I'm going to do it. That's the sensuous person. A passions is a bit more specific. It describes our desires. The passionate person desires to have their lust satisfied. They chase after that elusive sense of completion, of satisfaction. But their lusts only crave more. And so they become slaves to their passions. You know these people. Slaves to passions. Maybe, maybe this describes you, a slave to pornography, a slave to gambling. Any other addictive pursuits would fall under this category of passions. The third, drunkenness. Is, that's self-explanatory. That this person is one who drinks too much. They have their senses dulled. They lack uh, self-control. They impair their ability to make good decisions. They're a harm to themselves and to other people. They're self-destructive. Orgies describes what went on in some of the pagan festivals and feasts of the first century world. And it's a pretty good term for what our current culture calls partying. The ancient festivals that were held in honor of Bacchus, the Roman god of wine and fertility, often involved lots of drinking and lots of sex. They were like ancient versions of Woodstock or uh, modern spring break venues. Drinking parties is also self-explanatory. This is drinking in excess, drinking to get drunk, drinking that leads to more bad decisions and indiscretions. It's basically asking, let me have some bad decisions come my way. And then lawless idolatry. This is the worshiping of the creature rather than the creator. Idol worship in the first century was often connected with all of these other vices. There were times of immorality, intemperance, um, unbridled lust, destructive passion and pleasures. Peter says, this is how you used to waste your time as pagans. This is the life of sin. This is what you've ceased from in Christ. He suffered bodily on the cross in order to set you free from this way of life in order that you might be forgiven. And verse 4, with respect to this, they, pagans, the Gentiles, they are surprised when you, the Christian, do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. They speak evil against you. 
the new life in Christ in which we live according to the will of God is antithetical to the old life in sin in which we lived according to the flesh. And those that knew us, if you're a Christian here today, those that knew you B.C., before Christ, before conversion, are very surprised when they see you A.D., after you have died to sin. It's surprising, is it not, to to see a spiritual, moral transformation, to see one who used to delight only in fulfilling the lust of the flesh, suddenly delight in the good things, suddenly delight in worshiping and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes we're we're so surprised by it that we're skeptical. Did that really happen? Is that the same person? Remember the apostles, they were very skeptical of the apostle Paul. They wouldn't wouldn't receive him at first until Barnabas reached out a hand. This surprise that Peter describes is not a joyful surprise to the Gentiles, to the pagans, but an incredulous, a mocking surprise. Those with whom we used to sin are amazed and filled with incredulity that we would devote ourselves to God and to following his will rather than our own wills, rather than the lust of the flesh. And this surprise is indicative of their sinful blindness and moral corruptness. They don't understand how someone could delight in putting themselves under the law of God. Oh, what a burden! A law that they see as a dark prison. But which we as a Christian see as a bright freedom. A law of liberty. A yoke that is easy. A burden that's light. Ed Clowney says, drawing the line in a new life. That is drawing the line in the sand in a new life. Will antagonize former friends. They will find our new behavior bizarre even threatening. Maybe you can think of an occasion, multiple occasions in your life when former friends, former colleagues are threatened by your newfound piety. A holy life that seeks to walk according to God's will revealed in his law is a life that unbelievers simply find threatening. They feel backed into a corner. They're going to bare their teeth. They're going to bark. They're threatened. It threatens their autonomy. Like a bright light in the darkness, it shakes their false sense of peace. When we are sinning, we we don't like our sins exposed, do we? Whether directly or indirectly. We snap, we lash out. Who made you a judge over us? Look at you so high and mighty. They use all sorts of other language. To malign us, as Peter says. They verbally assault us. You may remember how the wicked unbelievers looked at Christ. And said, look, he professes to have a knowledge of God. He he calls himself a child of the Lord. He he, he became to us a reproof to our, of our thoughts. 
Remember, Jesus wasn't just looking at the outward appearance of men. He, he knew their thoughts. The very sight of him was a burden. His ways were strange. And so they persecuted him. They crucified him because of his perfections. John 1 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was perfect, impeccable. He sinned against no one. Yet from the moment of his birth, he has a target on his back. He's targeted as a threat. Herod wants him dead. The Pharisees and Herodians sought to destroy him. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was threatened. He was betrayed. He was tortured. He was crucified. Friends, if that's how the world of sin treats the Son of God on account of His righteousness, how do you think they're going to treat His people? His body. His bride. Our new life in Christ is not lived according to the flesh, but according to the will of God. And so it ought to be a countercultural way of life. It will surprise those who knew you before God saved you. It will inspire intense hatred and persecution. It might even come from those that call themselves Christians. They might slander you with terms like Pharisee. Oh, you want to keep God's word? You want to follow his law? That's you're a Pharisee. You're a legalist. You're a Puritan. But, says Peter, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So this is our third point. That though we're condemned in the flesh, maligned, we're vindicated in the spirit. We should not be surprised if the watching world condemns our countercultural way of life. Our holiness threatens their peace as they pursue their own pleasures. Our Christian morality grinds the gears of the pagan world and her agenda. We're seen as haters of humanity. How can you be so hateful, a bigot? We're seen as public enemies. We're on radicals list. Enemies of the state. There's a reason that the one and only Chick-fil-A in the UK was shut down in 2020. Only a year after opening. And I don't think it's because they don't like chicken in the UK. It's because Chick-fil-A has been labeled as a Christian business. That's threatening. Christians are those who won't bow down to the ungodly social agendas of our day and age. Earthly courts have turned with the times. What was once illegal is now legal. What was once a taboo is now openly embraced and encouraged. 
It's no longer socially acceptable, however, to be a professing, practicing Christian. Maybe it never has been. Attempts are constantly being made to rid the world of all reminders of God and of his law. What are we to think about all of this? Should should we despair? Should we despair and, and, and talk about the good old days of Christendom? Just look at 1 Peter. Just look at church history. The good old days look a lot like today. And Peter is encouraging us to remember that the one for whom we suffer is soon to return. The same truths that comforted them in the first century and in the 16th and 17th centuries are a comfort to us today. The king will return with a very particular objective. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. And those who are harassing his people, his bride, will have to give an account of their actions. Woe to them! The unbelieving world, by their lawless idolatry, by their maligning of God's people, they're blinded to the hard reality that their own lives are being seen and judged by the omniscient living God. They may haul Christians before earthly judges and demand they give an account of their strange behavior, but the truth is that on the last day, they themselves will be hauled before the judge of all and made to give an account of every deed they have ever done and every deed they have ever left undone. Peter encourages us with this truth that justice is coming. This was a truth to God's people coming from Ezekiel in chapter 28. The gallows that our persecutors are building for us will become their own downfall. Even for those who have already lost their lives through martyrdom or who went to their graves not seeing a day of vindication. For them, there's still hope. Because Peter writes, For this is why the God of Jesus Christ from the dead was a vindication of his righteousness and of his enemy's folly, his enemy's unrighteousness. So to our resurrection, our ascension on the last day will be our vindication and our enemy's condemnation. So though we're condemned in the flesh now, though we're maligned, We will be vindicated in the spirit on the day of the Lord, the day Christ returns. It's with this in mind that John Calvin wrote. We see that death does not hinder Christ from being always our defender. It is a remarkable consolation to the godly that death itself brings no loss to their salvation. Even if Christ does not appear as deliverer in this life, yet his redemption is not void or without effect, for his power extends even to the dead. And so it's in this way that the Apostle Peter prepares us for the hostilities of an unbelieving world. He encourages us as elect exiles to stand firm in the dead. Peter writes, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, give us this day the mind of Christ. And we confess that there's too much of the world in us, too little of Christ and his way of the cross, that we grumble, that we wonder where you're at when we're suffering. Lord, would you show us how you work? Would you sweeten our bitter sufferings and show us your power and majesty? Would you hasten the day of Christ's return, the day of our enemy's condemnation and of our vindication? And in the meantime, give us patience. Help us to live according to your will and not according to the passions of the flesh in which we, in which we once walked. And equip us, we pray, that we might endure to the end and be faithful sons and daughters. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.